Let us pray. We give thee thanks, O God, our Father, for the opportunity to give toward thy work. We therefore pray thy blessings upon the offerings which we bring this day and seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit for our church officers and our denomination in its work so that the gospel of Christ may be extended through what we have done by bringing our gifts this day. And now wilt thou speak to us from the scriptures, words which we need, which will enable us to bring our lives into greater harmony with thy will. For Jesus' sake, amen. A couple of days ago, we were going into Asheville, a whole family, and uh, when we got to the tunnel, just before you entered the city of Asheville, our 12-year-old held his breath until we could get all the way through the tunnel. And then when we got on the other side of the tunnel, he exhaled and then told us that had he breathed inside the tunnel, he would have been taking in carbon dioxide and other things that would have been detrimental to his health. And wanting to add years to his life, he held his breath while he went through the tunnel. Well, we can laugh at a 12-year-old and what he watches on television, but the problem is very serious. We saw it seriously reviewed for us all over the world the other day as our astronauts in Apollo 13 began to experience what it would be like to have the atmosphere in which they could live taken away from them. Because after the explosion of fuel cell, they began to run perilously short of oxygen and then the own carbon dioxide which they exhaled inside the space capsule began to saturate the filters that were there. And Mission Control in Houston put its best brains to work in trying to tell them how they could conserve every precious breath of oxygen and be returned safely to the earth. You see, man was made to live on this planet Earth, and God made things just right for him. But man rebelled against God, and as a result of his rebellion, he not only separated himself from his creator and maker, he separated himself from his fellow man, he separated himself from his environment, and the whole Earth has suffered as a result of this. Our young people band together with older people this past Wednesday under the direction of our mayor in Montreat, who inspired us to consider our responsibilities in conservation on Earth Day. He reminded us in chapel a few days ago that every year in America we throw away 7 million automobiles, 30 million tons of waste paper, 48 billion metal cans are discarded each year, 28 billion bottles and jars, a million tons more of garbage pile up each day. The air we breathe circles the earth 40 times a year, and America contributes 140 million tons of pollutants, 90 million tons from cars, we burn more gasoline than the rest of the entire world combined. Isn't that remarkable? In Los Angeles alone, smog may cause mass deaths by 1975. 
Another area of pollution is noise that creates stress on our lives and which doubles by measurement every 10 years. There are 5,500 Americans born each day, and 100 million more will be here by the year 2000. And yet we already consume and waste more than any other people. We flatten our hills, we fill our bays, we blitz our wilderness, and the quality drains from our lives. Now then, what is a Christian's responsibility for all of this? Well, let me say in the beginning that there are some thoughtful people who lay the responsibility for the spoiling of the earth right at the feet of the church itself. In some ways they're right and in some ways they are wrong. There is a great scientist whose name is Lynn White, who is a professor at the University of Southern California, who says that that verse which Dick Jensen read to you from Genesis a while ago which says that man is to have dominion on this earth has caused man to spoil this earth. In the December 2nd, 1967, Atlantic uh, a monthly magazine, there is also an article that appears stating that this man is true, that the basis of our problem of pollution is religious, the only answer is religious, and that that answer should be a, a turn toward pantheism, or the worship of nature as God. Well, that's no answer, and it's a misunderstanding of what took place in Genesis. Man did have dominion before he fell, but when he fell, he fell in his relationship to God. And only as that relationship is restored can he exercise a proper dominion. Otherwise, he exploits and wastes, as America has exploited and wasted its resources. I do agree that the basic, basic answer to all of our problems, the basic answer is a spiritual answer, and it has been sinful the way in which we have spoiled and wasted our planet. Paul tells us that the whole creation is groaning and travail, like the contractions of a woman going through the giving birth of a baby, that the ebb and flow of the sea, that the convulsions in the earthquakes, that the eruption of volcanoes, the winds that hurricanes bring, are all the sign of creation from a deliverance from the bondage of sin. But as man has been marred by sin and can be reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ, that man receives an obligation to return like he was in his first estate, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, but all under the dominion of God, and to remember that he is a creature of God's, the highest of God's creation, and that he has a responsibility of exercising his stewardship over nature as under God himself. 
and he cannot waste his world and be in harmony with the will of God. How does man then have God speaking to him about his responsibilities? We said a while ago, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. The heavens do declare the glory of God. The smog simply declares the sin of man. It tells us that we had rather have a high standard of living than to breathe pure air. That we'd rather have the junk that we can buy that is advertised on the television screens than to have a better quality of life. It tells us that a man's life consists in the abundance of the things that he possesses and that what he needs is to do is to waste more and more and more and more until he grinds up the resources of his planet. This is a sin of presumption, of pride, that causes us to go beyond what God means for us to do, and we pay for that sin. If we look at nature, and a little child, you know our little six-year-old, we have Sunday store on Sunday, and my wife gives him candy for learning Bible verses. He doesn't like to learn Bible verses. It's hard for him to let the Bible speak to him, but he likes the stream that runs close to the back of our house. Even he is attracted to flowers and trees and skies and mountains and awed by the snow in the winter. It speaks to his little mind, and it causes him to wonder for a moment. Well, man can see the handiwork of God in nature, and God means for us to see it that way. And the psalmist speaks of it that way. In fact, the metaphor is very beautiful in the 19th Psalm. It's like a relay race. I used to run in a mile relay team when I was in school. When I ran my 440 yards, I handed the baton to a runner in front of me who kept running. Well, what the psalmist is saying here is day unto day, as each day ends, the baton is handed to another day. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. The daylight is teaching us about God, the splendor of the sunshine outside. Last Sunday we studied that remarkable verse from the first chapter of 1 John. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Why did the psalmist use this metaphor of light? God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If I go into a store to buy a suit of clothes, and I want to see if the tie will match the suit, sometimes it's a good idea to walk out in the daylight and look at it because the colors are apt to be truer out there in the daylight. Well, the daylight is telling us something of the message that God has for us, and the night is telling us messages that he has for us. Apollo 13, crippled and trying to get back to the good earth. The astronauts went to the window and they looked out, trying to find stars so that they might be able to check their navigation and return safely here. Did it just happen that way? No. The stars... The stars 
were in the position of feeding information which was more reliable than the best computer that man could devise. Information that they could trust. And so they looked to the stars for knowledge. The stars were bringing a word from God. Yesterday I was in the hospital all morning with a young man whose wife was undergoing a serious operation. I saw that young man lean against the wall outside the big door marked surgery and wait and wait and wait and wait for two hours until the surgeon stepped out to bring him word about his wife, to bring him a word, to give him knowledge about how she was doing. He spoke only briefly, and yet the rest of the morning that we talked, he reiterated again and again and again what the surgeon had said. Well, this is what the psalmist is saying that the heavens are doing. The heavens are bringing us word from God, word that tells us about him and word that tells us about our need of him. But nature in itself is not sufficient. And so the psalmist makes a marvelous transition. He goes from the word that comes to us through nature, which tells us of God's greatness, he goes to the law of God. And it's interesting to me that the psalmist does not look upon law as a restriction of his freedom, as something that God is doing to hedge him in and keep him from fulfillment. But rather he looks upon the law of God as a gracious expression of God's love for him. We live in a day of anarchy against God, in which we have rebelled against his laws. We think that he made his laws to hurt us when the psalmist saw that the law of God was meant to show us God's holiness and his love for us. And if we would obey his laws, we could live together in harmony and peace. But the mirror of the law of God is not even sufficient. To change us is what we need. And so it's no accident that in the history of the Christian church, this 19th Psalm is read every Christmas day. Because Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation. Here is a word of God in nature that we are told about. Here is a word of God in the written law of God that we are told about. And on Christmas day, here is the word of God in human experience fleshed out and walking amongst us. And here is the promise that that living word of God would come and dwell inside us and that we would be able to fulfill that which he requires of us because his spirit comes to dwell inside us. Jesus summed it all up. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart thy mind, thy soul, thy strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. How do we do this? We do this as we go to him when he died to redeem us from our sins. We go to him for forgiveness as we did last Sunday when we came to communion. But then the Holy Spirit is working in us and the atonement keeps on working. We are walking in the light as he is in the light and the blood of Jesus Christ is progressive, progressively cleansing us from all sin. 
Now then, I said in the beginning, the church has a responsibility here, and we do. There are people who think it is not spiritual to reckon, reckon with our responsibilities to this earth. But a good Christian must reckon with his responsibility here. Expo 67 up in Canada had the arrogant theme, man in his world. It's not man's world. We sang the hymn a while ago, this is my father's world. Not a force. There is a difference between nature and nature's God. Jesus called our attention to the fact that that little sparrow that might be destroyed with the DDT that we dump so freely all over the planet, that God Almighty had his eye on that fifth little sparrow watching it, watching it in its flight, and if it falls to the ground, it does not fall without his notice. He said that we were of more value than many sparrows, but we are one with that sparrow in the fact that we are creatures of God. And he wishes us to be reminded of that fact, and he speaks to us about it. The responsibility, then, that many evangelical Christians have evaded at this point is that we have taught people not to lie and not to steal, not to commit immorality, but we've been stealing from the earth. We've been stealing from it and wasting its resources and hurting the people who will be dependent upon it in the future. And it is a responsibility of the church. Just as redeemed man is supposed to live like redeemed man, so we must treasure carefully the good earth on which we dwell. Now this, I think, is traced. Our exploitation in America is the worst offender in the world. The worst offender on the planet Earth is the United States of America because we have built a whole economy on waste, pure waste. And the Bible teaches us that a very usual way for the Lord to bring down the haughty is to let them dig a pit and fall therein. And it may be that our high standard of living, which we have worshipped so long, will become our own undoing. And so we need to reverse present trends. And a Christian has a responsibility in reversing these trends, too. You say, I'm only one person. What can I do? Well, we can begin to practice responsible use of the possessions that we have. We can certainly support legislation which will deal with cleaning up our rivers. The first time I ever came to this beautiful area of western North Carolina, I went to preach over in Waynesville. I remember flying into the airport in Asheville. There was a student from the seminary who had come to work at Bethel right outside the city of Canton. Canton has a big champion paper and fiber company mill. Inca, of course, is where there is a big rayon nylon mill. And when my friend was telling me that he was working outside of Canton, I said, where is Canton? He said, it's the second stink west of Asheville. We defile the air that we're to breathe. A beautiful river that flows into Canton comes out sodden, 
with pollution, unfit for trout, ruin. And yet we go at this in our lust for things. We want things. Now, there are ways in which things can be cleaned up. If we protest enough, we protest everything else. But we as Christians can hardly enter into the exploitation of our earth because when we're doing it, we are exercising good stewardship, but we must be responsible ourselves. So as an individual, I have a responsibility, and I have a responsibility to support legislation. And I have a responsibility as a consumer. The beer can or the Coca-Cola can that's tossed outside the road, and there are 48 billion of them a year, it takes that thing 30 years to rot away. 30 years. You add up 30 times 48 billion and tell me where you're going to get enough room to put that stuff. It's an enormous problem, and it's a spiritual problem because we have run away from God and we've gotten interested in a fun psychology, a fun mentality. Sex is fun, so forget the law of God and go into sex, and we suffer as a result of breaking his law. Waste is fun. It's a lot more fun to roll the window down and throw the can out and it is to keep it and take it home and put it in a garbage can. But there that fun mentality enters in. Man's chief end is to glorify God. And the heavens and the earth are declaring his glory. And our responsibility is to keep our part of it in an honorable way before him and under his stewardship. E-Day, ecology, stands for a balance of nature and man, man with his environment. And it is a spiritual responsibility to keep that balance what it ought to be. And we as Christians ought to be setting a good example in that direction. Let us pray.